In 2002, Walt Disney, I can say that. Let's start over, shall we? Back that up. In 2002, Walt Disney released a movie entitled Lilo and Stitch. It was a science fiction cartoon movie involving two young Hawaiian girls who lost their parents in an automobile accident. The youngest girl was Lilo. She was six when the movie started and had a birthday at the end, turned seven. And then there was her older sister, young adult named Nani. And as the story develops, little Lilo needs a pet. She's struggling with some things and she needs a pet. So she winds up going to the animal shelter. As I said, it was a cartoon sci-fi, so stay with me. She goes to the animal shelter and she winds up selecting an alien who's a secretly an alien posing as a dog. And he is named Experiment 626. He is a genetically engineered being that was created by a mad scientist on another planet. And his sole reason for existing, his sole mad scientist makeup, as it were, was to create chaos and destruction wherever he went, which he did incredibly well. He was a little blue creature. He looks cute, but he was a disaster, a danger in the beginning of this little cartoon. And the little girl, Lilo, adopted him, and she named him Stitch. Now, as the story goes on, Stitch causes all kinds of destruction. The young adult who's watching out for a kid's sister because the parents have died in the car crash, uh, she's got a job. Stitch is taken there on site to the job, and he just wrecks everything. She loses her job. Well, then the social worker shows up and basically tells the older sister, look, if you can't hold a job, then we're going to have to put your younger sister, we're going to have to split the family and put your younger sister in foster care. So the older sister goes out and she looks for all kinds of different jobs and every time she's interviewed, Stitch absolutely destroys, wreaks havoc, messes everything up. Finally, winds up getting their house blown up. So as the movie moves through and nears its climax, reaches a point where pretty much everything seems totally lost. Lilo, the little six-year-old, is kidnapped by aliens. Stitch has finally been captured by the mad scientist and his associate. And Nani is left crying on the sand. And while all this is happening and everything is just falling apart, little Stitch reminds them of something he had learned from little Lilo, which meant everything to him. It was the Hawaiian concept of ohana, or family, extended family. It had been obvious in the actions of the little girl because no matter how much destruction Stitch caused, the little girl, Lilo, unconditionally loved him in spite of all of it. And it was that unconditional love that she gave him was that acceptance that she gave to him, which caused a now very remorseful and shameful little stitch to reconsider all the damage he had done, to truly change his life, and to fight hard to defy the way he was engineered, to defy his intended destructive purpose in order to keep his newfound family together. 
the exact quote from the girl's now deceased dad, which Lilo had lived and taught Stitch, was Ohana means family. Family means no one gets left behind or forgotten. One source I read said, this quote from the movie Lilo and Stitch defines the meaning of family. It defines that meaning by mentioning that families depend on one another. Family is people who are emotionally close and loyal to one another. Family is people who are trustworthy to one another. And so, as I said, it's at a really bad point in the movie and little Stitch pipes up and says this. Well, when he does, it is at that point that Nani, Stitch, and even his captors, because he's such a changed little alien, even his captors decide to work together as one, as a family, to get little six-year-old Lilo back from the aliens. Something for which at the end of the movie, at the very end, they are all blessed and protected and rewarded for as they have begun to work together to rebuild both the house as well as their new lives together as family, even though they are literally, literally from different worlds. I mean literally different worlds, different planets, different backgrounds. But as we get near to the end of that movie, just before that happens, as a now changed and humbled little Stitch says to his final captors near the end of the movie as he's right on the verge of being deported back to where he came from and destroyed, he looks at the two girls and he says, this is my family. I found it all on my own. It's little and broken, but still good. Yeah, still good. You know, there are certain things that family means and there are certain things that family certainly does not mean. For example, family as we all know in our own families, family does not mean that we are always going to agree on every little issue. But that doesn't change the fact that at the end of the day we're still family. And that we still love and support and defend and protect and encourage and spend time with one another because that's just what families do. That's what family means. That's what family is designed to do. There are a number of folks in the scriptures. No, this isn't all about a cartoon this morning. There are a number of folks in the scriptures that certainly understood what family was for. But sadly, there's a number of folks in the scriptures who didn't get it. And one of the interesting things as I studied for this lesson and, and thinking of the book of James that we're doing on Wednesday night, one of the things that I always noticed that set the two apart, those who understood family and those who did not, was the pride and the envy in the hearts of those who didn't understand and practice this godly concept of family and love and forgiveness. But on the other hand, the humility and the mercy inherent in the hearts and minds of those who did understand it. Let's look at some of those biblical examples. Turn to me to Genesis 37, would you please? Genesis chapter 37. It 
It's the story of Joseph, as we know, and, and we're very familiar with the story, but I want us to look at it from this angle. Joseph understood the concept of family. His brothers did not. Let's start with the brothers. They didn't get it. Genesis 37, 1 through 8. Now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. This is the story of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers. The lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph bought a bad report of them back to his father, or of them to his father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. Also, he made him a tunic of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they, watch this now, watch the wording, you're going to see it again, they hated him. Could not speak peaceably. They couldn't say a kind word to their brother. They hated him. Moving on. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. So he said to them, please, hear this dream which I have dreamed. There we were, binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and also stood upright. Indeed, your sheaf stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Shall you indeed reign over us, or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more. Wow. They hated him, they hated him more, and they hated him more than that. Three strikes, Joseph, you're out. They hated him for his dreams and for his words. And in verse 11, it's very clear as to why. Because they envied him, the scripture says. And so it was in verse 18 that they conspired against him to kill him. That's pretty stinking serious, folks. They conspired against him to kill him. But you see, that's what pride and envy and a lack of humility and mercy does. It is deadly. It is as destructive as Stitch was designed and intended to be in the beginning. Now, of course, as we know, they didn't kill him, but they sold him into Egyptian slavery, and eventually he rises up to second in command of all of Egypt. But even though his brothers didn't get the concept of family, Joseph did. Joseph got it. Years later, when his brothers became desperate and they came to Egypt looking for help, they found that Joseph was second in command of the whole nation, and when they found that out, they feared for their lives. Why did they fear? They feared because they thought Joseph would surely seek vengeance and retribution, but he didn't. He didn't. They feared because they thought he was like them, but he wasn't. Joseph was instead full of mercy and love and compassion. He understood what family was for. Turn with me to Genesis 45. In Genesis 45, we read in the first 11 verses, Then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried out. Genesis 45, verse 1. Make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, and the Egyptians and the house of Pharaoh heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. I'm guessing they probably were. And Joseph said to his brothers, please come near to me. So they came near, and he said, I'm Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But, but do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. 
For these two years the famine has been in the land, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it wasn't you who sent me here, but God, verse 8. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh, lord of all his house, ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go tell my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me and do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen. You shall be near me. You and your children, your children's children, your flocks and your herds, all that you have, there I will provide for you. Joseph understood family. Joseph got it. Verse 14, then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and he wept and Benjamin wept on his neck and moreover he kissed all his brothers and he wept over them and after that his brothers talked with him. They may have talked with him but they still weren't real clear on this meaning of family yet. They, they, they still didn't quite get it and we'd notice this over later on after his father, after their father dies in Genesis 50 if you'll turn there. Look at verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, see, see, once their father was dead, they thought, uh-oh, here it comes. He's going to unleash now. He's been nice to us for dad's sake, but now we've had it. They said in verse 15 of Genesis 50, perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. So they sent messengers to Joseph saying, before your father died, he commanded saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin for they did evil to you. Now please forgive the trespass of the servants of God, your father. Joseph cried. Joseph cried. Joseph was a man of tears. And in the first time we see him crying. But we see him crying because he loves his brothers. And it doesn't matter that they sold him into slavery. It doesn't matter that they plotted to kill him. It doesn't matter all these years. He looks at it from a totally different perspective. But he loves his brothers despite what they did to him. And Joseph cries again. Then his brothers, verse 18, also went and fell down before his face. And they said, Behold, we are your servants. They're afraid. But Joseph says to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Joseph understands it's not his place to exact vengeance. He'll let God take care of it. He said, am I in the place of God? What we say today, uh, you know, I, I don't make money enough to, to take the place of God. Well, that's above my pay grade, is it? you will. He said, am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant it evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people. Now, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. You know why he did that? He did that because that's what family does. That's what family means. Family is full of love and comfort and humility and mercy and compassion, even despite some of the, even despite some of the differences or even terrible injustices that it may have suffered in the past. A second example that we would note is the example of David. David and his son Absalom, which we see recorded in 2 Samuel chapters 13 through 18. In that 
account, we see David, and I'm not going to obviously turn and read all those chapters, but you can look at them later. We're just going to encapsulate them. In 2 Samuel 13 through 18, we see David, who definitely understood the concept of family, and his son Absalom, who definitely, absolutely did not. We know the story. The trouble all started when Amnon raped his half-sister Tamar. And David was very angry with his son Amnon for it. But while David was just angry with Amnon, one of David's other sons, Absalom, hated and sought opportunity to kill his half-brother for what he had done. And he eventually manages to take Absalom's life, and then he flees from the presence of his father, King David, because he knew that his father would not agree with what he had done. And as we continue on through that account, we see David. Even though David was very angry with his son Absalom's actions in killing his half-brother Amnon, David still loved and missed his son Absalom deeply because Absalom was still family no matter what he had done. 2 Samuel chapter 13 and verse 39, chapter 14 and verse 33 shows us how David still loved his son despite the differences and the tragedy. But not so Absalom, no sir. Because of the bitter envy and jealousy in his heart, he sought to undermine his father, King David, at every possible opportunity. He sought to go after him, even forming a rebel army and seeking to kill his own father, David, just as he had done his half-brother, Amnon. With this rebel army, he chases King David off his throne, chases him out of Jerusalem, seeks David's life. In the ensuing battle at the end of those chapters, in 2 Samuel chapter 18, Absalom, who sought to kill his father, is instead himself killed. And this son Absalom, who had sought to kill King David, I want you to see King David's response when the son who sought his life was killed instead. 2 Samuel 18, beginning at verse 31. Just then the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, There's good news, my lord the king. 2 Samuel 18, 31. For the Lord has avenged you this day of all those who rose against you. And the king said to the Cushite, Is the young man Absalom safe? The only thing King David wanted to know is my son okay? Is he okay? So the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise against you to do you harm be like that young man. It is at that point that David realizes Absalom is dead. When he finds out the son who sought his life was dead, the king, verse 33, was deeply moved, went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said thus, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died in your place, oh my son, my son. Chapter 19, verse 1, Joab was told, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day 
was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard it said that day, the king is grieved for his son. The people stole back into that city that day. It's people who are ashamed. Steal away when they flee. They've just won this marvelous victory. They've just won this victory for their king, King David, over the rebellious Absalom and his rogue forces that were seeking David's life. And they're all charged right up. But David is so broken up by the loss of his son that it looks like the people who won are coming back as the losers. It looks like they're the beaten and defeated ones. But the king covered his face, and the king cried out with a loud voice, O my son Absalom, O Absalom, my son, my son. Joab came into the house of the king and said, Today you've disgraced all your servants who have saved your life, the lives of your sons and daughters, the lives of your wives, the lives of your concubines, in that you love your enemies and hate your friends. For you have declared today you regard neither princes nor servants, for today I perceive that if Absalom had lived and all of us had died today, it would have pleased you well. David loved his boy. It didn't matter what his boy had done. He loved his boy. That's family. That's family. Perhaps nowhere in the scriptures is this seen more clearly than in our third and, and final example. And that is in Luke chapter 15. If you'd please turn there. Luke chapter 15 pictures this probably better than anywhere else I can think of. In the account in Luke chapter 15, the story of the prodigal son, which we're all familiar with, in that account you have three characters. Three characters and three characters only. And those three characters perfectly, perfectly represent the three different elements of understanding what family is. Number one, you have the father who does understand. Number two, you have the older son who definitely does not understand. And number three, you have the prodigal son who did not understand at first, but came to. If you're open to Luke 15, again, I'm not going to read it, very familiar, but I will note the verses in verses 11 through 16. We see where the younger brother somehow thought that he would be better off living life the way he wanted to, living life his own way, far away from the love and the structure and the fellowship of, the, of his family there on the farm. Now you know this was not the father's will for the boy, not at all. The father would have known that there was nothing but heartache out there waiting for his boy away from the family. He might have even tried to convince his son of it. Dads would try to convince their sons where there's danger, right? Sure. He might have even tried to convince him of it several times. But some people just can't be convinced. And so the father had the wisdom to let the boy go. He knew he wasn't going to hold him if he wanted to be gone. Some children have to learn the hard way. So the father lets him go. And he goes out there, he gets his life in a mess. Well, as I said, we know the story well. And he finally learned. And he finally grew lonesome. And when he came to his senses, as it says in verse 17 in the New American Standard Translation, he began to understand something. He began to understand, 
verse 17, that in his family, even the hired servants had it better than he had it out there where he had chosen to run to. And so with his newfound appreciation for his father's family, with his newfound understanding for the family he left behind, he determined to return. Enter the second character in the story, the father. The father who had always understood the meaning of family, the one who now welcomed, don't miss this, welcomed his boy back with open arms, the one to whom it did not matter what his son had done, where he had been, or the differences that had come between them. All that mattered was his boy had come home. That's what mattered. And look at this. The, the father understands this, this, this concept of family, that, that the differences and, and all his son had done, it didn't matter. His boy had come home. That's what mattered. Verse 20, it says, And he arose and came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion. And he ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I don't belong here. I'm not even worthy to be called your son. But his dad wouldn't have any of it. The father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fatted calf here and kill it. And let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead. And he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. And they begin to be married. The father understood family. But the older boy didn't. The older boy definitely did not. The third character in the story, the one whose pride and Self-righteousness because of his own performance as compared to his brothers simply could not, simply would not, and definitely did not share his father's understanding of family. And it left him filled with only anger and jealousy and animosity in verses 25 through 30. We are God's family, is that right? We're God's family. We are God's family, God's saved, although still human family here in Shoto, Oklahoma, aren't we? And what that means is this. Rubber meets the road. In the days and weeks and months that lie ahead of us, there's going to be some good times, amen? There's going to be some shared work and some shared fellowship, right? Awesome. But you know, in the days and weeks and months to come, there may also be some other things. Uh, by the way, if you don't think there's some good things coming, look on the bulletin board out here. We can't put many more posters up. There's some awesome things that we can do together. But in the days and weeks and months to come, because we're human, there may be some times that as a family, we disappoint each other. Is that fair? Maybe a time I disappoint you. Maybe a time you disappoint me. Maybe a time the person behind you, beside you, around you, in front of you, wherever, disappoints you. 
Maybe a time we frustrate one another a little bit. Maybe occasion we get on each other's nerves a little bit, disagree with one another, maybe even hurt each other from time to time. All unintentionally, absolutely unintentionally, you understand, but it's still going to happen. You know why? Because we're human and because we're family. That happens in families. Goes with being a family. Any family. And when those things do happen, as they're inevitably going to happen, it's up to each one of us as family members to love, to accept, to forgive, to comfort, to encourage, to take care of, and to work together with one another because that too goes with the territory. It's just part of being a family. And especially when it comes to being a part of the family of God. Because although we are all one family, we're not all the same. We're not. The Bible compares the body of Christ to the human body, right? Different body parts. My liver does not do what my teeth do. Hopefully there's no teeth in my liver. <laughs> they each perform a different job to help my body, right? And we're all different, but we all work together like parts of the body. And it's precisely because we are all built and think and do things differently, there are gonna be times when we're gonna disagree. There are gonna be times when we're gonna step on each other's toes. There's gonna to be times we may get on each other's nerves. Did Paul and Barnabas get on each other's nerves? Acts chapter 15, yep, they did. They got on each other's nerves. What do you say to that? I'll tell you what I say to that. It's just part of being a family can't live and work in close proximity without these things happening from time to time. So expect it. How many of you went out driving around in the snow? Nobody? Okay, a few. And when you did, you probably went out and slipped and slid around a little. You kind of expected that if you're gonna drive in that kind of weather that it's gonna be a little slick, right? You anticipated that, you knew it was coming. Understand that as part of a family, there's going to be times where we're going to disagree. There's going to be times when we may step on each other's. It's part of it. Expect it. It goes with the territory. It's just humanity. It's just family. And when that happens, be prepared to deal with it. Expect it and be prepared to deal with it biblically. Maybe times that we have to bite our tongues instead of biting each other's head off. It's going to be times we have to understand that the brother or sister who just hurt us may be upset us a little is no less human, no less weak and given to failure than we ourselves sometimes are. We're going to have to understand when those things happen that those are nothing other than golden, God-given opportunities in disguise for each one of us to learn to become more like Jesus. I just preached on this. To learn firsthand how to truly love, how to truly forgive, how to truly accept and work with one another to the glory of God, just as Christ also received us, Romans chapter 15, verses five through seven. You know why? Because at the end of the day, despite any possible differences, despite any possible disagreements, despite any possible difficulties, at the end of the day, 
We're still family. We're just family. We're still all one in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it's our calling, therefore, to have the love and the mercy and the compassion of Christ in our hearts, to love, to forgive, shed tears over, maybe even provide for our brethren who may have hurt us in the past just like Joseph and David did. Or to love and help and comfort and celebrate should a truly penitent family member who has wandered away from the family looking for greener pastures when they finally realize that the grass is always greenest way you water it, repents and returns home like the story of the prodigal son to reconnect with the love and the support of the family they left behind. Because here's the thing, there's nothing on this earth, and I preached on this not too long ago. Today kind of wraps up a whole lot of past lessons. There's nothing else on this earth. If you can think of it, then you can reprimand me after services. You know where I stand right out there, right? Feel free to correct me if you think I'm wrong, but bring your Bible. There's nothing else on this earth that is more important to God than his family, his church. That's why Jesus came, that's why Jesus died. The one family or body or church of our Lord Jesus Christ is the most important thing to God on earth. John 17, 20 and 21. Remember, Jesus died for each one of us as individuals so that then we could rise up and learn to live and love and work and worship and forgive and fellowship together as one so that we could help each other get to heaven, didn't he? Do you need each other? You know what that's called, right? Family. Only question this morning is, are you part of God's family? Have you obeyed the gospel by being baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? For as many of you as were baptized into Christ to put on Christ. We're all sons of God through faith in Christ is how that is preceded. Or maybe have the scriptures this morning pricked your heart. The point that maybe you feel as though you need, might need the prayers of the church to become a better, more loving or encouraging family member. Or maybe you're somebody who feels the need to make known the fact that in some way you need to come home this morning. If that is the case, then both your Father in heaven as well as your family that's sitting right here in this pews, these pews this morning, stand ready to love you, to encourage you, to comfort and assist you. Right, church? Right now, if you have any of those needs as we stand and as we sing.